0: God, that we would just focus on that, that we can understand that regardless of what we face, that we don't have to be uh, people who are dictated to or directed by fear, but we can walk uh, in the comfort and in the promise, knowing that you said you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you would stand beside us, that you would be our strength and you would be our guide. And so, Father, I pray that that would be uh, just really our heart's cry. That would be the echo that we cry out, knowing that in the midst of, of, uh, of our lives, even in difficulties and struggles, maybe it's depression, maybe it's doubt and discouragement, maybe it's finances, maybe there's all kinds of things that work together, but we don't have to be uh, slaves to fear because we are your children, that you created us in your image, that when we have uh, put our faith and trust in you, that you will walk with us and uh, through the storms with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, for those of you who are uh, or have been here for a while, um, this is a continuance or really a wrap-up of, of our Titus sermon series. I, I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it, this idea of living in light of God's grace and understanding what takes place and how this plays out. Um, a lot of times we look at the end of the book, a matter of fact, as you begin to read the Bible or maybe as you read the Bible, when we come to the end of a book there 's always this conclusion or the end of a letter specifically from Paul. There are these conclusions that oftentimes get overlooked. Um, a lot of times we overlook the introduction when the intro- introduction uh, really sets the the foundation. but a lot of times, especially when you get to the point of where we 're at in Titus, we tend to overlook the importance of what takes place in a book. Now, I want to ask you this question. You don't have to answer it. But when you start to finish a letter, in some way, shape, or form, what are you trying to do? You're trying to wrap everything up, right? You're trying to get a main conclusion. You're trying to say, hey, here's what I'm doing. And, and for those of you who, who really have not ever experienced letter writing, how many of you would say, I've never really handwritten letters, Come on, look at me. Everybody, come on. I'll oh, be honest. Where's my younger? But you've never, oh, come on. Ethan, you've written a letter before? Really? Okay. Now, TikTok and Facebook don't count. Okay, I'll I'm just, I'm just mess with you. All right. The reason why I say that is because it was one of the things when I was in the Navy that I lived on. All right, this idea of writing letters was something that was valuable to me because when I wrote a letter, then somebody wrote back. A matter of fact, one of the favorite, de- favorite times of the day was mail call when you're on a ship. And you knew when mail call came because they would announce it over to 1MC. The 1MC is the speaker that goes over the whole ship. And when the plane landed, it's a C2, it's also called the COD, the carrier on board delivery. And when the COD landed, they would announce it. And you knew. Hey, guess what that meant? Not only did it mean supplies, it usually meant mail. And then after a while, they would get the mail and then you would hear mail call, mail call. And then the guy who was in charge of going and getting the mail for your division would go down to the post office on the ship and he'd pick it up for everybody he'd come back and everybody'd be waiting. Like, give me my letter, you know? And especially when you're in the Persian Gulf or in the Middle, Middle East, you know, those days were few and far between. It might be every third or fourth day, and I'm sure it's even worse for the guys who were out in the desert. But when you got mail, it was like, woohoo! this is awesome. This is the letter I'm getting. And you always live for those days. But I want you to understand what takes place here. See, Titus is one of those three letters that we talked about earlier that Paul wrote that's called the Pastoral Epistles, all right. First and Second Timothy, both written to Timothy, obviously, and then Titus, these are the pastoral epistles. He's passing on a message of importance to these guys who are pastors in local churches. So those are the pastoral epistles. And I wanna remind you again that Titus was to stay in Crete and appoint elders to carry out the ministry because there was false teaching, infiltrating the church. And so this book could be considered, and I told you this in the very first week, could be considered an apostolic manual for church planting. In other words, understanding the role of what the church is to do. Paul saw this out in a great way. If you know anything about Paul and you read the book of Acts, Paul had this great knack for building relationships with people, leading them to Jesus, and then saying, hey, guess what? You're in charge of the church. I'm going somewhere else because I'm going to plant another church. I'm going to start one somewhere else because the gospel needs to spread. And you have to begin to understand in some way, shape, or form, I don't know why, but the church got away from that. A lot of times churches got away from that and they went, oh, no, 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 no. We don't need to start more churches. We just need to what? We just need to grow them. We need to grow bigger churches. The problem with bigger is bigger isn't always necessarily better, is it? Now, I don't mean that in a callous way because there's lots of great big churches, all right? But there are lots of great smaller churches. The smaller the church, the less Cumbersome it becomes, and the more you can do on things like this. And I want you to think about this a small fighting force, even like Navy SEALs, always operates in smaller teams. They don't operate as a huge battalion or a company of soldiers. They operate in small teams. Why? Because it's easier to accomplish the goal with which they're setting out to do. So this letter is not written just for pastors or just for church planters, but rather it is something for all of us to understand, every believer, because there is great wisdom and truth for all of us in this situation and setting. All right, while every believer isn't called to pastoral ministry, every believer is called to ministry. And so we laid that out at the start. And last week, we kind of set the stage for the finale, if we would, when we looked about where he says, remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities. And I brought this up last week. It seems to be more and more today that we have people who are falling into the trap of selfishness, all right? We make decisions that benefit us while we neglect the good of everyone else, and that also goes on in the church. And the reason why I brought that up is because in the past, people would say, Over my dead body, is that ever going to happen in the church? I mean, and, and the joke oftentimes is amongst pastors is Jesus could show up and try and change some churches, and they still wouldn't be on board with it. All right? And so, Those are the selfish things. Now, we always want to cautiously watch because we want to ask ourselves, am I being selfish in the decisions with which we make? So we make decisions that benefit us while neglecting the good of everyone else. And so let's face it. The me culture has led to the downfall of many things in the life of the church as well as in the life of the country. Remember, I, I gave you the quote last week that, uh, that John F. Kennedy said a long time ago, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Today's motto would be, ask not what your country, or ask not what the country's gonna do for you, but ask what, or sorry, ask not what you can do for the country, but what the country can do for you, because that seems to be the motto. And listen to me, I want you to understand this. That plays out in the church as well. We have a bunch of people that are being raised that thinks everything revolves around them, including people within the church, when the reality is the church should revolve only around Jesus Christ. And what I want us to look at as we dig into Titus chapter three is to understand that this me culture, this selfish, self-centered thing can become an overemphasis, not only in our lives, uh, not only in the individuals outside, but in individual needs and wants within the church. So if you have your Bibles, Titus chapter three, follow along with me, starting in verse nine, okay? Starting in verse nine, Titus chapter three, listen to what he says. But avoid foolish, What? controversies. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time after that have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos and the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in their faith. Grace be with you all. Now, Listen, I want to explain a couple of things so we can begin to understand. Number one, our sermon title today is Devotion and Discipline. And what you have to begin to understand is with devotion also comes the responsibility to be disciplined, to be a person who follows what God has said. And likewise, just like a parent, you have to begin to understand what's going on. As a parent, it is your job to what with your children? Discipline them, right? I mean, the reality is a child, we, we, we say this over and over, a child does not have to be taught to say no. As a matter of fact, it seems to be for some reason the first word that comes out of some children's mouth, no. Don't touch that, no. Don't do that, no. If you do that, no, it's like, oh my gosh. But this idea that a child does not have to be taught to do wrong has to be corrected by Showing them what to do that's right. In other words, we correct or we discipline because when you do something that's out of line, you've got to learn what is unacceptable and likewise what is acceptable. And so as we wrap up with this idea here, as we wrap up with this book of Titus, what we have to begin to understand is, if you remember chapter three, is about doing what is good. And the reason why we do what is good is because we are saved, we are blood-bought, we have put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so as a result of our salvation, then we're to do good works, And it doesn't stop in verse 8. This is a lot of times what we do. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 8, it says this. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But this is what he says. So in order to do good, here's the bad things we want to make sure you do, but avoid foolish controversies, all right? See, here's the reality. The me culture brings an overemphasis on our own individual needs, our own individual wants, and this leads to conflict and as a result should lead to discipline. And it's something we also see in the church. You have to begin to understand this. All throughout church history, we have seen conflict. I mean, if you're in a church long enough, especially if you're in a family, I mean, any, anybody ever not have any problems with brother, sister, mother, father, right? I mean, in a family, there's conflict, right? But you learn how to deal with conflict through discipline. When I'm out of line, if I was to do something when I, when I was out of line, my dad put me in check real quick and my mom wasn't far behind him. I'll make that sound like mom wasn't a disciplinarian. My mom was not the mom who'd be like, you wait till your dad gets home. My mom was like, Oh, whoop your tail, dude. Yeah, I'll drop, I'll throw, you know, I was joking around, I'm throwing bows. You know, my mom was like, I don't have to wait till your, mom, your dad gets home. I'll kick your butt. Yeah. So, But we have to understand that in a family, discipline is a good thing. It is a necessary thing. It's something that we have to see played out. And so what we begin to see when I talk about devotion and discipline is this idea that when we are devoted to Jesus, That discipline is something that comes, especially when we begin to see problems or we begin to see sin rise up. See, people are willing to believe that they can have a super relationship with the Lord while neglecting the responsibilities to the church. Now, the reason why I say that is we have to begin to understand that when you are in a relationship with Jesus, you are in a relationship with the church. It's no different than marriage. It's no different than marriage at all. A matter of fact, the church is what? It's the bride of Jesus. And so when somebody says, well, I love Jesus, but I'm not gonna be involved in the church. I'm not gonna go to church. I don't wanna be active in the church. I'm not gonna serve in the church. You begin to have a problem and there's where the discipline issue has to come in. Because to say I love Jesus, but I hate the church is to say, man, Darren, I love you, but I hate Lou. Darren's going to be like, that's fine. I'm going to bust you in the nose because <laughs> she's my wife and I love her. I mean, anybody ever done that to somebody? You know, man, I just, you're a great guy, but I can't stand your wife. Or, or man, you know, I, I love hanging out with you, but your husband, he's an absolute moron. You're not going to be very good friends, are we? I mean, imagine what would happen if that took place, all right? So we begin to understand that we have to see that their focus on the calling to the Lord, we have to remember also the body of Christ. So here's the big statement. If you remember anything else, I want you to remember this, all right? God's grace leads us to continue doing good while avoiding foolish arguments and warning divisive people, all right? God's grace leads us to continue doing good while avoiding foolish arguments and warning divisive people. Now, listen, here's again, as we jump into this, I'm going to ask this question. How then do we deal with conflict in reality? How do we deal with this? Because I believe these verses lay this out very simply. So listen to what he says. How do I deal with conflict? Number one is this. If God's grace leads us to continue doing good, which is the focus of chapter three, while avoiding foolish arguments and warning divisive people. So here's the deal. How do we deal with conflict? Number one is this. We avoid foolish arguments. Avoid foolish arguments. Listen to what he says. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Now their argument here was the things that the people were trying to hold up to, the false teachings. They're trying to say... If you're a good believer, then you're going to completely keep the law, of which Paul would say, there's no way you could do it. The law shows you are a sinner. Over and over and over again, Paul says, the point of the law is to show how much you need Jesus. The point of the law is to show that you can't live up to it, but Jesus did live up to it. The Bible says, according to what Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, in other words, to do away with it, but I came to fulfill it for you. Because the more we understand about the law, the more we realize we're just a big bunch of failures because we can't meet the standards the law set up so he says avoid the foolish arguments about this here's what we have to begin to understand that all of these behaviors that he's talking about here are inconsistent with God's grace all of the behaviors in other words the foolish controversies the genealogies the arguments and the quarrels about the law are all inconsistent with God's grace Because what they are built upon is selfishness. When I get into an argument, you know, the the old adage, my wife's not here to defend herself today, but when Sarah and I get in an argument and I know I'm wrong, how many times do you think I admit I'm wrong? Not very often. often. (laughs) I just turn and walk away. And she'll be like, who's right? Who's right? She'll be egging me on. And I'm like, I'm not going to say it. I'll just walk away. All right? But what you begin to understand is that when we avoid foolish arguments, we actually give the chance or the grace of God a chance to work. See, here's the struggle oftentimes. Everybody loves to be a critic until it's time for them to be criticized. See, everybody wants to sit back and go, well, I would do it this way. And then all of a sudden they step up and they're like, why are you all being so mean? Why are you talking about me? See, we gotta avoid foolish, avoid foolish arguments because the whole idea of a foolish argument is a foolish argument is a time killer. All it's doing is leading us down a point of no return. When I get into foolish arguments, which in reality, this would be one of them, even though it has nothing to do with scripture, whether the Chiefs or Broncos are, are better. Kind of a foolish argument because everybody knows the truth. <laughs> said raiders? Hi, where's, <laughs> where's the stones? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> all right. So all of these behaviors are inconsistent with God's race, but listen to what he says. Avoid foolish controversies. Here's, here's what I want to throw out there. If I said, hey, there's this restaurant over here. I would avoid it at all costs. It's dirty. It's nasty. I think the dude spit in my food. How many would be like, I'm going to go eat there you'd be like no 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 I'm gonna avoid it you hear statements from people when they say hey avoid this place or don't go here or maybe on a Monday afternoon where you are heading home and it says avoid I-435 and 70 interchange because it's a mess what are you going to do you're going to avoid it right Paul is literally telling Titus here at this point, after reminding everything or everybody to do good, he says, you have to avoid foolish arguments. Foolish, and I wanted to play this out just a little bit farther. So avoid means to completely bypass or stay away from, to steer clear of foolish controversies. You know what the word foolish here comes from? It's the Greek word moros. Anybody wanna know what we get from that? Moron. Avoid moronic arguments. Don't be foolishly caught up in controversies that are stupid. Those are the ideas to avoid those types of things. And controversies, if you'll really think about it overarching, controversies are based on human reason and imagination rather than the word of God. So Paul is literally telling Titus, avoid the foolish controversies, avoid the moronic arguments that are based upon human reason, because the reality is that human reason doesn't understand the overarching sovereignty of God. Human reason doesn't take into account oftentimes how God works in our world, in our setting, and in our own lives, so avoid those foolish arguments that everybody wants to argue about. Why? Because it's unprofitable. Listen again to what he says, because these are unprofitable and what? Useless. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend a bunch of time doing a bunch of useless stuff. If I went to work 8 hours a day and walked away from work going, well that was useless. How long am I going to stay at that job? Not very long well, that was just pointless. I did absolutely nothing today. Now, maybe some people would like that because they're getting, quote unquote, a free paycheck. But I think after a while, you're just gonna get sick of it. You're gonna say, this is pointless. I'm wasting my life. So we avoid, avoid foolish arguments so that we can stay on time. As a matter of fact, I, I said this earlier, foolish arguments are time killer. And a time killer keeps us off track. In other words, it's not profitable because it gets us off our mission. And what is our mission? To go and make disciples, right? So foolish arguments lead us off track. That, that they're, they're time killers that aren't profitable for anything, and it leads us off mission. So here's the main thing. If we wanna avoid foolish arguments, we gotta stay obedient to God's word. So how do I deal with conflict? I avoid foolish arguments and I stay obedient to God's word. Here's number two. How do I avoid conflict? We warn troublesome people. Listen to what he says, all right? Starting in verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Anybody ever been around somebody who's divisive? You know the idea, you know the thought process, you know when that undercutting begins to take place, you know when the negativity begins to creep in and we understand that divisiveness is nothing more than Satan working in your heart and when you begin to go after somebody else, you begin to change the scorecard in a certain extent. You begin to look at things in a different way. Remember again what I said, everybody is always a critic or, or lots of people are critics until they become criticized and once you become criticized all of a sudden you become a person who doesn't like critics but it's always easy to be the criticizer or the critic of somebody else until somebody criticizes you and then all of a sudden you're like wait a second that's not fair you know one of the things i deal with is that with every level of leadership you get less and less people and what's funny is with every level of leadership you get more and more criticized because you have less and less people who want the responsibility, but you have more and more people who want to criticize what you do. Well, I would. Okay, come on in and volunteer. Well, no, I don't want to do that. Well, Well, you're criticizing. You want to criticize, then rise up. No, 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 I don't, I couldn't do ever that. So how do we deal with conflict? Number one, we said we avoid foolish arguments. Number two, we have to warn troublesome people. Here's what I always try and say. We can, we can go through Titus, we can go through Galatians, we can talk about all kinds of different areas that Paul has written, but I want you to understand that this idea of stirring up conflict and the division, this is a behavior issue, it's not a theology issue. Matter of fact, there, I will even say this, and, and, and I, as I was prepared for this, there are times where somebody may be right theologically, but if they are divisive as a person, they're still wrong when you go in looking for a conflict and trying to be a divisive person who undercuts what's going on, now you become a troublemaker. So warn troublesome people. It's this idea of admonish a person. And listen, it's not just a one-time thing. Listen to what he says. He says, warn the person once and then warn them a second time. But after that, have nothing to do with them. And here's the big picture when we play this out. I'll even use this as an example. If somebody was to, to be gossiping, or somebody was to be undercutting that somebody else that you're talking to, you have to begin to say, hey, you got you to gotta watch yourself. You got to warn this divisive person. What I mean by that is this. It's not when you're talking about somebody who's fallen off the deep end, and they're struggling, and you're going to somebody, and you're saying, hey, man, we're trying to help this person out, lift them up. It's when you go to somebody, and you're trying to talk down and undercut somebody else. You're trying to cast doubt on their integrity or you're trying to create conflict within a church. So the idea would be this. Maybe there would be, let's go old school. When I was growing up, I told you, but maybe there is a person on this side, another person on this side, and there's one of them that's working divisively, trying to undercut the authority of this person, trying to attack him, trying to say they're a snake, they're all these types of things. This person theologically may be a little bit off, but this person down here, begins to undercut. And as a result of the undercutting, they become a troublesome person because the behavior doesn't line up with the gospel. And so when we talk about somebody, when you begin to undercut with the form of a gossip or you begin to be the complainer, warning that troublesome person is giving them an opportunity. So listen to what it says. It says, warn them once. Okay? The ideal warning is there, "Hey, hey man, we don't need to be going down this road. Second time, you warn them the second time. Hey, bro, we're just pushing a little bit too far. We got to watch ourselves. Third time, what's it say? Have nothing to do with them. Now, people are like, well, that's pretty harsh. But if you'll look, whether you look at Matthew chapter 18, if you look at various texts, when it deals with dealing with discipline within the church, Jesus always gives people chances but he also expects something different. And here's the reason why. Troublesome people who are saved or who are claiming salvation and they aren't willing to accept the discipline that comes as a result of what's taking place, have more problems because they're still selfish. They're still focused on the sin within themselves. And they're saying, look, I am bigger and better than everybody else. And so he says, how do we deal with conflict? I have to warn a divisive person and then I'll warn him a second time. And after that, I have nothing to do with him. Now, when present discipline is the next response, all right? So in other words, when there's a divisiveness, the next response is discipline, Nobody likes it, right? Like, I mean, one of my kids talks back or one of my kids tells me, I'm not gonna do what you told me to do. What do I do? Ignore it? If I ignore it, maybe it'll go away. It's not gonna go away, is it? That's why we have issues at schools. That's why teachers are like, I can't deal with these kids. They're undisciplined. I've sat with teachers and they tell me over and over and over again, this kid is a hoodlum He's a problem. Guess what, mom and dad come in and do? Oh, my Johnny would never do that. Really? I mean, heck, one of the things we had to deal with with Ethan not too long ago was that. And I went in, I'm like, hey, let's have a conversation with the principal. She's like, well, this is what happened. I'm like, I'm going to bust your butt, dude. He knows what I'm talking about, too. But I want you to understand this, that when trouble comes up, you have to deal with it immediately. You can't wait. I read a, a, a thing yesterday. I don't even know who posted it. It was on Facebook. And I'm, I'm not willing to go quite this far, but it was a, it was a guy, it was a picture of him sitting in a, in a prison cell and he wrote a letter to his mom. And in this letter, I mean, it's really long. I'm just gonna basically justify or, or, or say in a short way what he wrote. But in this letter, he basically told his mom, hey, mom, this isn't just on me, it's on you. Because when I talked back to my teachers, you never held me accountable and you always said it was her fault. And when I got in trouble in high school and I punched that kid, it was never that kid's fault or never my fault, it was that kid's fault. And on and on and on, and then he ends up in prison. So you get the big picture. What I want you to understand is this. When discipline is absent, divisiveness is all somebody is gonna know. So we warn troublesome people. We warn people who are being divisive. Remember this idea of divisiveness is undercutting. In, the, in our devotion to healthy doctrine, remember we talked about this devotion and, to doctrine and then now the discipline. In our devotion to healthy doctrine and the church body, we must also be committed to discipline and right relationships. The point of discipline is not to hurt, abuse, or tear down the person, but is to restore an individual so they know the right way to respond so they don't treat other people in the wrong way. And so listen, we said foolish arguments are time killers, but the other problem is troublemakers who take time away from accomplishing the mission. So Paul is addressing this with Titus. Hey, we don't want you to be a time killer and avoid or in getting caught up in stupid arguments, but we also want you to avoid the troublemakers because the troublemakers will also carry you off mission. And anytime a person rises up, that may be a person who is pushing back, who's a troublemaker, then you begin to say, hey, we've got to address this issue. So Matthew lays it out. At first, you go to them by yourself. If they don't respond, you go to them with two. So we can deal with those issues. So you warn troublesome people. You give them a chance to respond to the grace. You give them a chance to admit their sin. You give them a chance to be restored to what God has wanted them to do. Because listen to what it says in verse 11. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. So the very things they're doing, they're showing their sinfulness in that. So, we said foolish arguments are time killers. We say that Troubled people can be troublemakers and as well, both of those things carry us away from accomplishing the mission. Listen, here's the thing, and I know this is an uncomfortable thing at times because I want you to understand this. A lot of times people go, you're talking about discipline, and I've seen church discipline happen in the past and it can get ugly. All discipline can get ugly. I remember the first time my mom mom told me what she was going to do and she did it and I laughed. And it just happened to be that my dad walked around the corner right as I left. (laughs) And it was not good. It was twice as bad. But I want you to understand that discipline is not a joyful thing to walk through when you deal with anybody. I don't wake up. I always tell my kids this. I don't wake up going, man, how can I discipline them so their life is an absolute wreck? I mean, I don't know a parent, for the most part, that would do that. I want to destroy your life, so I'm going to discipline you. No, discipline is something that we allow to take place so that we can become better individuals. Number three is this. How do we deal with conflict? Number one, we said avoid foolish arguments. Number two, warn troublesome people. Number three, devote your life to living out God's word. Here's what he says. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. And then listen to what he says in verse 14. Our people... Those who are following Jesus, those who are part of this church at Crete, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Remember what I said? Carrying away from the mission If we go down this road and we don't do what we're talking about, then we have a chance of living unproductive lives. And what I'm here to say today and what I understand in most people's lives is when we talk about Christianity, there's a lot of superficial Christianity that takes place. But when it comes to productivity within the body of Christ, when it comes to productivity of seeing people, the gospel shared with people and things like that, a lot of times we live unproductive lives in the life of the church because we've allowed selfishness, we've allowed foolish arguments, we've allowed divisive people to take root. And as a result of that, unproductivity is normal in the life of a church. So Paul is just warning Titus, listen, you gotta watch for these things while doing good because there may be right theology, but there may be bad behavior. So one of the things that I bring up is recently, for those, if you pay attention to any of this at all, I I jokingly say this, and I don't understand it, but we are really good at being cannibals. We like to eat our own. We disagree on something small. Now, I'm I'm gonna clarify something small. And as a result, because of that disagreement, especially with social media today, guess what we do? We blare it out to everybody. And as we blare it out to everybody, we show conflict. We show disunity. We show no unity around the mission that Jesus has called us to, and rather we attack certain individuals that we may disagree with. Now, if a person is teaching wrong theology consistently and constantly, and they never admit to it, I understand dealing with that. But I can also tell you this, that there are people who teach great theology, and there's going to be some differences on things, on how we view what we'll call non-essential things. And when we go after chasing those things, Like I'm going to use Calvinism versus Arminianism, which people will say, you're either a Calvinist or Arminian, there's no middle road, of which say I say, yeah, you got no clue. All right. Okay. God's sovereignty overlooks all of those things. But when you make Calvinism a main argument or you make Arminianism a main argument, you're a divisive person. It's just one of those things that you begin to understand. So we devote ourselves in our lives to living out God's word. Listen to what he says. I need to be a lifelong learner. And so he, he lays this out. We don't really know a lot about Artemis and Tychicus other than what we see in scripture, but he says, do your best to come to me because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So I want you to understand when we devote ourselves to living out God's word, we should be a lifelong learner. So that's why we gave you the reading plan for those of you who are struggling maybe to to read. We gave you a reading plan right out there. You can pick it up on the way out. It's a a one-year reading plan, one chapter a day, one chapter. We're talking five minutes. But it's not just to read it. We want you to interact with it. So we gave you on the second page in there is a thing called the Hear Journal. I'm asking you, and I would, I would even encourage you, I would tell everybody this. A matter of fact, as we start to go through things, I would encourage everybody to have some sort of note-taking journal. Go to, go to Walmart, grab a spiral notebook, learn to take sermon notes, learn to document what you're reading. And so the, in the here journal, there's gonna be a thing called highlight. You're gonna highlight the main thing that stood out in that chapter. So if you're reading with us right now, we're going through the book of Luke, we're reading through Luke, as you're reading along, something stands out in a chapter. I'm going to write that down. So I'm going to write it out. In it, I'm also going to explain it. Who is this written to? What's it about? What's it concerning? Who's involved in this? What's Jesus trying to say? All right? Application. What's this mean for me? How am I supposed to treat other people as a result? What does this mean in my life at work? What does this mean with my life with my kids? How do I treat my wife? How do I treat my neighbors? Those are questions you begin to ask to apply it. And then the last thing is a response. So here, H-E-A-R, I respond. God, let me be a person who shows you every minute of every day. How do I respond? Very simply, journal it out. And then you begin to discuss it. But we become a lifelong learner. Number two, we have to learn to maintain good works. Here's what we have to begin to understand. Good works, this idea of providing the daily necessities and not living unproductive lives. We're not saved by faith plus works. Please hear me out. I've heard people say, oh, you're preaching a works-based salvation. Never. We are not saved by grace with works. We are saved by grace through faith, but as a result, Ephesians chapter says that we have, Ephesians chapter two verse ten says that we are saved to do good works. So, as a result of our salvation, we do good works. So, we're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by a faith that does work. In other words, that we live our lives to promote and present who Jesus is. The presence and practice of these good works provide the context for the healthy practice of church discipline in the local church. So here's what I wanna wrap up with this. If we understand what Paul is trying to say here, we have to understand this, that holiness and purity matter in the life of every believer in every church. Please hear me out. Holiness and purity are more important than your feelings and emotions. I know that sounds harsh. I know that at times sounds difficult. But what we all have to understand is that holiness and purity matter. So how we talk, how we act, what we say to those around us reflect greatly on who Jesus is to us. Holiness and purity matter. We proclaim through discipline that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God loves those around us. But we also understand that discipline confronts the sinner But we want restoration of the wayward, we want the purity of the church, and we want to protect the fellowship of the body. And so we understand those things. Mark Dever is a pastor out in Washington, D.C., and he says this, there are five reasons for church discipline. Five reasons for church discipline. For the good of the person, for the good of other Christians, to warn them of sin for the health of the church, the holiness, for the witness of the church to those who are outside looking in. And number five, for the glory of God God as we reflect his holiness. So how do we implement discipline in the church? Number one, I believe is this, that we're doing it right now. We teach what the Bible says. While uncomfortable, While dealing with something like this, we have to begin to understand that the Bible teaches this very clearly. You can go and read 1 Corinthians. You can read Romans. You can go through those things. There is a reason why church discipline exists. But then, listen, then we implement discipline. Listen to me very clearly, because I want you to understand this is not a headhunting thing. We're covering what the, the section of scripture talks about. But we implement discipline lovingly, wisely, gently, and slowly, because discipline is not about showing somebody they're wrong and you're right. Discipline is always about restoration. Listen to me, restoration of the person who's being disciplined so that, listen, when sin is evident, because it's always gonna be evident, because everybody's a sinner, say by grace, that's put their faith and trust in Jesus. Sin is going to be evident. But when sin is evident, we can go to the person and we can say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. So we're calling you out to correct it. Now, when handled lovingly, gently, gracefully, wisely, are there still gonna be problems? You better believe it. And here's the reason why. You ever met a hard headed, stubborn kid who just won't say yes, even no matter how much you show them, they're wrong? Anybody ever been there? Anybody say, that? Yeah, that's my kid, or that was my kid, or maybe that was me? I was the kid who was always bucking the system for mom and dad, you know what I mean? If that's you, you have to understand that discipline is still necessary, right? Even if they buck the system, even if they get more divisive, even if they get more hateful, even if they create more foolish arguments, what is our responsibility? Lovingly, gently, wisely, and slowly. For the benefit of restoration, because when discipline handled properly is, 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 or is handled properly, then people win. The church wins. God wins. God works when we're obedient to what he calls us to do. So listen, as I wrap up with this, because I want you to understand this. The point of discipline is always to bring healing within the body. So that when I am wrong when I do something that's inappropriate, the point of church discipline would to say, number one, hey, we wanna help you deal with your sin. Number two, we're we're calling you out on that sin so that you can begin to heal through that. You can begin to walk through it so that you're strengthened. And listen to me, the beauty of this is this, that when a person walks through this process, I believe they become a a more integral, a stronger part of the church. And here's the reason why because they've gone through a tough time. They walked into a a, a state of sin. They walked in disobedience. They were called out. They were restored and they were strengthened. And as a result, the church benefits from that. And so listen to what he says in verse 15 and here's how I wanna leave us with it. Paul's writing this again to Timothy with great encouragement. Hey, listen. All of those things are going to be things you're faced. We want to focus on doing what is good. And then Paul says this, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Paul's point is this. Paul wants us to know that we're not in this alone. Titus, even though I asked you to stay at Crete, even though you're gonna be taking on false teachers, even though there's gonna be uh, crazy arguments and there's gonna be divisive people who rise up, Paul or Titus, I want you to know that me and all the people here with me, we're praying for you because you're not in it alone. And what I want you to understand today is this, that even in the midst of everything that you go through, even in the struggles, the difficulties, the battle with sin, that you and I are not alone that you are part of the body. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you become a part of the local church. You are a part of the body. You're a part of the family. You're not meant to be alone and isolated. You're meant to be together. And listen, families can be messy. Churches are just like families. Churches can be messy. But I want you to understand when we deal with it lovingly and gently, wisely and slowly, that the church benefits as a whole. The family grows as a result. And as a result, the gospel is made known. Let's pray. Father, we know that in the midst of Jesus' death on the cross, that there are those who still stand in controversy to him. There may be foolish arguments that rise up. And God, I pray just today that maybe there's some here today. Maybe there's something that's grown up inside of a heart. There's a, a bitterness, a, a resentment. Maybe there's some anger or some frustration. God, that we can just pray about it, that we can can, can confess it, that we can turn it over, that we don't wanna be divisive people who who chase after foolish arguments or who try and cause quarrels and fights. But we want to be, as a church, we want to be holy. We want to be righteous. And just as you said in in your word, that we are called to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a city on a hill that others can look at and gain direction and wisdom and insight as we stand on the truth of God's word, as we stand and acknowledge that we're all sinners saved by grace because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Father, today I pray that just as we wrapped this up, that God, you have used Titus in a great way to encourage us, to challenge us, to correct us where maybe we have have let our hearts go astray and that we would be obedient to what your word says. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.